Okay, I think we've got it. Anyway, this was kind of a depiction of 2020 in its, all its glory. Uh, and yet, despite masks and social distancing requirements, we brought in 2021 with a renewed hope and a belief that it was going to be better. The American spirit seems to crave a new beginning, the opportunity for a better tomorrow. Well, now that we've said goodbye to 2021, how's that hope looking? 2021 didn't solve any of our problems. In fact, it brought with it a whole new set of challenges that seem to build on a daily basis with shortages of some of the basics we've become accustomed to, like food and gasoline. We have shortages of people, too. Not enough police, not enough medical personnel, not enough teachers, all in short supply. Inflation seems to be a pandemic in and of itself. And now we have people standing in line for their uh, 43rd booster shot or something. And yet a lot of people are hopeful for this magical thing called a new year. Scientifically speaking, there's no magic in the coming of a new year. Most people understand that New Year's Day celebrates another successful trip of the Earth around the sun and not some mystical reset button in our lives. We intellectually understand that we'll have the same problems on January 1st as we did on December 31st, and yet every year we make resolutions and we celebrate and we hope for a brighter day. It's like the hope of a new beginning is irresistible, something of a quality of the human spirit. So where do you find yourself today? New Year's Day is gone. The reality of January 2nd has set in. And a realization of the fact that we have choices to make on how we approach this coming year. But we certainly don't need to look at society or our culture or our politicals or our politics to gauge our reaction to life in this coming year. We only need to look at scripture. And we'll look at a couple of passages in a minute. But first I want to set the stage, the context of where we're going, especially if you find yourself displeased with where you are spiritually today. In the old movie City Slickers, there's a scene in which three friends are gathered together and one of them is telling the others how he's messed up his entire life. He's lost his wife, he's lost his kids, lost his job, he's lost his self-respect, he's lost everything. He's basically telling his friends, it's over, I've lost, I've lost it all. And I know I used this several years ago in a message, but I think it's worth repeating. Ah, oh, Phil. Come on, Philly. Come on, man. It's not that bad. I'm at a dead end. I'm almost 40 years old. I've wasted my life. Yeah, but now you got a chance to start over. You know? Remember when we were kids and we'd be playing ball and the ball gets stuck up in a tree or something? And we'd yell, do over. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> Your life is a do over. You got a clean slate. 
Your life is a do-over. I don't know if there's anybody here that really wishes that they could have a do-over in our lives. I wouldn't go back to being a kid for nothing. But when Tish and I were first discussing the concept of, of a do-over, she was telling me that when she was a kid playing marbles and the marble would slip, they would call overseas. They got overseas. I always called them ovaries, and, but Tish said you shouldn't shouldn't say ovaries when you're talking in church like that. Uh, but whatever you call it, overseas, ovaries, do-over, how many people would really like a fresh start in your life, or at least in some areas of your life? This is the beginning of a brand new year, and it's a time that we customarily make resolutions, things we're going to change. <clears throat> How about just doing a do-over? Most of us have made mistakes in our lives. We've experienced setbacks, failures. And sometimes we allow those setbacks and failures to enslave us to a point that we never enjoy the full Christian life the way that God designed it to be. We've never been able to get past saying, God can't use me after what I've done. We have a dead-end job. We feel stuck. We think that we went into the wrong career and there's nothing we can do about it now. Or Maybe we get married and a few years later we decide the marriage is just a disaster. It may survive, but it's going to be nothing but tragic. We say something hurtful to a parent or maybe to one of our children. And we feel like the relationship will never be the same. Maybe we're in a rut and we desire a break in the monotony. Or it could be that we carry pain or shame and want freedom from the emotional burdens that we, that we have. Whatever the reason, there is something inside us that is attracted to the thought of a fresh start. If you find yourself in a place in your life where you feel sidelined, somewhat hopeless, <clears throat> Like maybe the promise of John 10.10 10 just didn't apply to you. It was for somebody else. <clears throat> if that's where you find yourself this morning, then this message is for you. The fact is that throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament alike, God says the very same thing. I want you to have a fresh start. I want you to have a new beginning. I want you to do something special in your life. It's a major element of what our Christian faith is all about, the opportunity to start fresh, to do something new with our life, to have a do-over. And it isn't just salvation that's being talked about. It's a constant theme in Scripture. In the Old Testament, God tells the Israelites, do not call to mind the former things or ponder things of the past. Behold, I will do something new. Now it will spring forth. Will you not be aware of it? And in the New Testament, in Philippians 3, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We need to understand that God is far more interested in our future than he is in our past. 
Some people think that God is, is stuck on their past. That all he wants to do is remind them of the stupid things they've done wrong, and it's just not true. God's interested in your future. That's where you're going to spend the rest of your, your life. He says, forget about your past. Forget about the former things. Don't think about it. Look at the new things that I'm going to do. So here we are at the beginning of 2022. I wonder how we'll do this year. Will we be as busy? Will we make better use of our time? In 364 days, when the year is over, will we be looking back with joy or with regret? Will we be looking at the future with anticipation or with dread? Are we going to take the time for a do-over? Or will we be in the same place we are today? This morning I've chosen two passages of Scripture for us to focus on as we begin our new lap around the sun. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. Passages that may shed some light on our expectations, on our mindset as we make our way through 2022. I think it's kind of funny how Scripture remembers different people. Abraham was remembered as faithful, as trusting. You think of Moses and you envision a leader. Paul's probably best known for being a writer, a theologian, and John for loving. But Simeon, Simeon, the small figure in Scripture, He's remembered not for trusting or for leading or for loving, but for looking. Let's take a look at Simeon for a minute and see how this man waited for the first coming of Jesus Christ. Because the manner in which he waited for the first coming gives us an example of how we should be approaching the coming year, how we should be waiting for the second coming. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 25, says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law. Then he took him in his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for my eyes have seen thy salvation. Wow. The encounter with Simeon in scripture is brief. It occurs eight days after the birth of Jesus. Joseph and Mary have brought their son into the temple. It's the day of sacrifice, the day of circumcision, the day of dedication. But for Simeon, it's the day of celebration. You can almost imagine a white-haired man working his way down the streets of Jerusalem. People in the marketplace call his name, and, and he waves at him, but he doesn't stop. Neighbors greet him, and he returns the greeting, but he doesn't pause. Friends chat on the corner, and he smiles, but he doesn't stop to chat with them. He has a place to be. 
and he doesn't have any time to lose. Verse 27 tells us that he was prompted by the Holy Spirit to come to the temple. Apparently, he didn't have any particular plans to go to the temple that day, but God thought he probably should go. Probably through a prompting within his heart, Simeon decided to forego his golf game that day and head to the temple. What's interesting is that this isn't the first encounter that Simeon has had with God. Verse 26 says the Holy Spirit had already revealed to him that he wouldn't die until he had seen God's anointed. you got to wonder what a message like that would do to a person. What would it do to me if God did that to me, tapped me on the shoulder and said, Hey, Tom, i got this thing. Well, we know what it did to Simeon. Verse 25 says he was constantly expecting the Messiah. Other versions say he was living in expectation of the salvation of Israel. And another version says he watched and waited for the restoration of Israel. Simeon was a man kind of on his tiptoes looking looking for the one who would come to save Israel. The Greek language is rich with descriptive words, and it has a whole bunch of words that mean to look. There's one word that means to look up, one says look away, one word is used for look upon, another for looking in, another word for looking at something intently, and another for looking at someone carefully. All different words for look. But of all the forms of look, the one which best captures what it means to look for the coming of is the term that is used to describe what Simeon was doing here. The word is prosdecomai. Decomain meaning to wait, and pros meaning to look forward. You combine the two of them and you have a graphic picture of someone who is waiting forwardly. The grammar isn't that great, but the image is. Simeon is waiting, not demanding, not not hurrying. He's waiting. But he was waiting forwardly, patiently vigilant, calmly expectant, Eyes open, arms extended, searching every crowd for the right face. That's what the lifestyle of Simeon was, and it can be ours too. Haven't we, like Simeon, been told of the coming of Christ? Aren't we, like Simeon, heirs to the promise? Are we not prompted by the same spirit? Are we not looking for the same face? So what kind of people should we be? I think Simeon should be our model. Luke says that Simeon was a good man and godly. Peter urges us to live holy lives and serve God as you wait for and look forward to the coming of the day of God. Looking forward. We truly should be looking forward, being patient, being godly, being vigilant, and always looking 
because we have a promise. There's a true story that comes out of the 1989 Armenian earthquake, a disaster that took only four minutes to flatten the entire nation and to kill 30,000 people. Moments after the deadly tremor ceased, <coughs> a father raced to an elementary school to save his son. When he arrived, he saw that the building had been leveled, and looking at the mass of stones and rubble, he remembered a promise he had made to his child years before. No matter what happens, I'll always be there for you. Driven by his own promise, he found the area closest to his son's room, and he began to pull back the rocks. Other parents arrived and began sobbing for their children. It's too late, they told him. You know they're all dead. You can't help. Even the police officer encouraged him to give up. But the father refused. For eight, 16, 32, 36 long hours, he dug. His hands were bleeding. He was absolutely exhausted. But he refused to quit. Finally, after 38 hours, he pulled back a, a boulder and he heard his son's voice. He called the boy's name, Armand, Armand. And the voice answered back, Dad, it's me. Then the boy added these priceless words. He said, I told the other kids not to worry. I told them if you were alive, you'd save me. And when you saved me, you'd save them. Because you promised, no matter what, you'd be there. Well, God has made the same promise to us. I'll be back. He assures us of that promise. and We know the rocks are going to tumble and the ground's going to shake. But the child of God does not have any reason to be afraid. Because the Father has promised that he'll be back to take us with him. There's nothing to fear. Live life this year looking forward with anticipation to a promise being fulfilled. That's the New Testament passage that we can cling to this year. But there's a second passage I want to take a brief look at this morning that may shed some more light on our expectation, on our mindset as we make our way through 2022. It's found in Joshua. It says, Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. At the end of three days, the officers went through the midst of the camp, and they commanded the people, saying, When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priests carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not come near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. The Lord will do wonders among you. Most of us are pretty familiar with the setting of what's going on here. Israel's about to cross the Jordan into the 
into Canaan. They were about to enter the land that God had promised them for a lot of years. They were about to walk where they had never been before. And Joshua said to the people, you've not passed this way before. Tomorrow would mark a new era in their lives, a new chapter in their history. It was tomorrow that God promised would be blessed with wonders. Joshua shared with the people God's promise when he told them in verse 5, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. What does your future hold? What does this new year possess for all of us? Our future and our tomorrows are, are untrodden paths. It's a time of our life that has not been disclosed to any of us. We don't know what tomorrow holds but we do know who holds tomorrow. And he's promised that our tomorrows can be days of wonder. I think we need to see some wonders again. I've heard it said there's nothing wrong with you that a miracle wouldn't cure, and I believe that. We as a people, as the human race, need to experience the wonders of God. Fairly certain the world has never been in such disarray. Certainly our country has never been so morally and spiritually bankrupt as it is today. George Barna, in his book, Today's Pastors, writes, and I quote, Sadly, our research points out that pastors are disappointed with much of what is happening under their leadership and are greatly frustrated in their efforts to serve God and his people, hopefully Hopeful about ministry, yes. Excited about what is actually taking place in their ministry, no. In one of his surveys, he found that less, less than 1% of pastors said that they would characterize their church as highly effective. The majority of pastors felt the church was showing little positive impact on souls and on society. 3% went so far as to agree that the church is failing miserably at every turn. So how can our tomorrows be filled with wonders? I think if we use this passage in Joshua <coughs> as a model, it seems like we could learn something very valuable about years of wonder. Verse, verse 5 says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves. We read in verse 2 that they encamped at the Jordan for three days before actually crossing over. Why would they do that? I mean, there's the promised land. We're going to hang around here for three days before we go? Why would they do that? I'm guessing there were several reasons. But one would certainly be a time of remembering all the ways that the Lord had led them, how he had been faithful and gone before them, how he had provided for their needs, and then enriched by these memories and mindful of the love that had never failed them, they would respond to the command, consecrate yourselves. What was Joshua telling them to do? I think he was asking for a rededication of their lives to the Almighty God. 
it would seem that the wonders of tomorrow depend on our consecration today. If we want to see wonders tomorrow, consecrate yourself today. A simple renewal of our dedication to God and our commitment to be the people that he's designed us to be. As part of consecrating ourselves, it might help if we sought out what it is that he wants from us individually. Have you ever really asked God questions like, God, what do you want for my life? What do you want for me? What do you want me to do? How do you want to use me? Where do you want me to serve? What's your plan and purpose for this stage in my life? Probably need to remember that prayer isn't just talking to God, it's listening too. When he was 88 years old, the late Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once found himself on a train. And when the conductor came by, Justice Holmes couldn't find his ticket. And he's searching madly for it. It's terribly upsetting. Searched his pockets, fumbled through his wallet, couldn't find it anywhere. The conductor was sympathetic, and he finally said to him, Don't worry, Mr. Holmes. Pennsylvania Railroad will be happy to trust you after you reach your destination. You'll probably find your ticket, and you can just mail it in to us. Mr. Holmes, still very befuddled, looked at the conductor and said, My dear man, my problem is not where is my ticket. My problem is where am I going? So where are you going? What happens many times in our spiritual lives, I think, is that people run on default mode. There's no purposing to change. It's almost like I'm satisfied just remaining the same. Keep on doing the same things we've always done and keep going in the same direction and yet wanting it to be different. Wanting to see tomorrow's wonders but not putting forth any effort to actually visualize them. We need to not only know where we're going, but we need to get some directions on how to get there. We need to sanctify ourselves fresh and anew. Pretty worthy New Year's resolution, I think, a rededication of our lives to God. As we start the new year, putting God first in our lives is going to be key to this coming year being one of wonders. Something else we see in this passage is that there's a divine presence among the Israelites. There was one article, one item, that was crucial to their crossing and the wonders that they would experience tomorrow. It was the ark. We read in verse 3, And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. What did the ark represent? Well, further down in verse 10, we read, Joshua said, Is that the right one? Yeah. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Parasite, the Girgashite, and the Amorite, and the Jebusite. The ark symbolized the presence of God. You want to see tomorrow? Great, great wonders tomorrow? 
We've got to make sure that God's with us. His presence is essential to seeing wonders. In fact, without God, there aren't any wonders. He's the author of wonders. And one of the ways we can stay close to God, that we're assured of his presence, is through our prayer life, through our quiet time, through Bible reading. We can't be effective ministers of his word if we aren't in his word. We can't rest his assurances if we don't take the time to be with him. We can't be certain of his direction and presence before us if we're not 